it's the nuclear secret that never was that Israel has the only nuclear arsenal in the Middle East. Its leaders have never confirmed it nor never denied it. But one thing they cop to without hesitation is their total rejection of Iran ever getting the bomb. They talk about going to war to stop that from happening because they say that Israel cannot live with a nuclear Iran. Or can it? That's what we're here to debate, so let's do it. Yes or no to this statement, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters to argue for and against this motion. Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Our debate, as always, will go in three rounds, and then you, the live audience, votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. On the side, arguing for the motion, James Dobbins. He is the Director of International Security and Defense Policy Center at RAND. His partner is Reuven Pedetsur, a senior military affairs analyst with Haaretz. <laughs> On the side, arguing against the motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, Shmuel Bar. <laughs> he is Director of Studies at the Institute of Policy and Strategy in Herzliya, Israel. And his partner, Jeffrey Goldberg who is national correspondent for The Atlantic and columnist for Bloomberg View. Our motion is, excuse me, our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And now let's meet the team arguing for the motion. First, let's welcome, again, James Dobbins. And Jim, you are now at um, RAND, where you are Director of International Security and Defense Policy Center, but in a previous life, um, working with the State Department. You were at the talks for the, the conference for the setting up of the state of Afghanistan after the wake of 9-11. And in that, you were involved in negotiations that involved the Iranians. And you said that actually the Iranian delegation was helpful in the process. And you, you know that that's not really the reputation that the Iranians normally bring to the table. Well, they were helpful. Um, I think it was a sort of a combination of gratitude and fear. They were grateful that we just knocked off one of their two principal regional rivals, which was the Taliban, and they were fearful that they might be next. <laughs> um, and so it was a combination. It was also a different Iranian government than the one we have today. Um, it, it was a, a reformist regime operating within an environment that limited their powers but not limited it to the point that they couldn't reach out. It was a genuine opportunity that we flubbed. I'm not going to argue tonight that we still have that opportunity. James Dobbins. And your partner is? Your partner is Raouven Pedetsur. Oh, <laughs> excuse me. I thought I was finished. Uh, yes, Raouven Pedetsur. Okay, Raouven Pedetsur, ladies and gentlemen. Reuven, you are also arguing uh, for the motion that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. You have obviously a, a serious personal stake in this. Uh, you are uh, a resident of the state of Israel. You were a fighter pilot. Uh, you were a pilot in the Israeli Air Force. Uh, you now write for the Haaretz newspaper on uh, issues of security and military affairs. Um, Reuven, you told us back in 2006, seven years ago, uh, where you stood on this issue when you wrote a piece back then that said, let them have nukes, them being Iran. What sort of reaction did you get back then? There was no reaction whatsoever because you should know that in Israel there are no public debates on nuclear issues. It's a taboo. Uh So there was no reaction. And if that happened today? The same. 
Yeah, well, we're going to have a debate tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Reuven Petitsur. Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, and two debaters arguing against it. First, Shmuel Barr, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Shmuel, like your opponent, uh, you have that stake of being an Israeli citizen. You also served in war as an intelligence officer. Uh, you now direct studies at the Institute of Policy and Strategy in Herzliya, Israel. Just a short preview of your argument here. Uh, it's sometimes argued uh, that it, the Iranians would be no more interested in a nuclear war than the Soviets were uh, during the Cold War, and they didn't use it. So give us one reason that that argument just doesn't end this debate right now. Well, <clears throat> since I'm a historian, I've noticed that uh, if, if during history everybody had acted according to the rational actor model, then most of what we know as history wouldn't have happened. Pearl Harbor wouldn't have happened. Barbarossa wouldn't have happened. Uh, certainly Stalingrad wouldn't have happened. So uh, apparently uh, things happen which are not necessarily because it's in the interest of somebody to let it happen, but because of other dynamics. Shmuel Bar, ladies and gentlemen. And your partner is? Jeff Goldberg. I know how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey Goldberg. Jeffrey, you're also arguing against the motion that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Um, you're a national correspondent for The Atlantic, a columnist for Bloomberg View. Uh, you're in a unique position here in that you've had more uh, exclusive interviews with Bibi Netanyahu, I think, than any other American journalist over the past several years. You've been in, inside the guy's head. Or you've been near the head. You've not <laughs> Inside. But, but inside. What, what do you... Where do you think he is in terms of his thinking seriously about his willingness to go to war over this? Is it a posture or is it a decision? Well, I, I, would, say, I would say first that you know, there are teams of neuroscientists in a bunker under the White House trying to figure out what's in Netanyahu's head. Um, so it, it's a mystery to me, too. Um, I, I would say, to sum him up in a, in a, in a sentence, I, I would say that he has many manifestations of a typical insincere politician, on the Iran question, I think he's actually sincere. What that means for policy, I don't know, but he is very sincerely gripped by this issue. And he's not liking you very much these days. Uh, we're, having, um, we're having difficulties in our relationship, yes, <laughs> at the moment. At Thank the moment. you, Jeffrey Goldberg. Ladies and gentlemen, our four debaters. Check with the guys in the basement of the White House. Um, so as we said before, in this debate, you, our live audience, act as our judges. By the time the debate is over, we will have asked you two times to vote. The first time telling us where you stand on this motion before hearing the debate, the motion being Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Then we'll have you vote a second time after the debate is over, where you stand on the, on the point after hearing the arguments. And the team who has no moved its numbers the most over the course of the evening, will be declared our winner. So let's register your preliminary vote. Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. If you side with this motion at this point, push number one on your keypad. If you're against it, push number two. And if you're undecided, push number three. And if you think that you made a mistake, just correct it. The system will lock in the last vote that you did, and all of the other numbers are inactive. So just deal with one, two, or three. And it looks like everybody is done. So remember again, we're going to reveal the result of that vote after you've heard all the arguments and after you have voted the second time. 
That will come at the end of the debate in its final minutes, and that is how you, our audience, will choose the winner. So we go in three rounds, and first on to round one, opening statements from each debater in turn. They will be seven minutes each. And here to speak first for the motion, Reuven Pedetsur, arguing that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. He is a senior military affairs analyst with the Haaretz newspaper and a senior lecturer in political science at Tel Aviv University. He's a former pilot for the Israeli Air Force and serves as director of the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Strategic Dialogue at Netanya Academic Center. Ladies and gentlemen, Reuven Pedetsur. Good evening. Where are the results? No results yet? Anyway, can Israel live in a nuclear run? The short answer is yes. Any questions? <laughs> okay, but the real question is not this one. The real question, do we have another choice? And unfortunately, the answer is no. Because it's possible, despite of all pressures and sanctions, and even if there will be an Israeli military attack, that in, the, in this decade, Iran will have nuclear weapons. So the question is for the Israeli policymakers, what then? What will be our policy in this case when Iran will have the weapons? Unfortunately, there is, as I said, there is no public debates on this, so we don't know what they think over there about the, the, the future policy. What should Israel do when there will be an hostile Iran with nuclear weapons? The most effective and maybe the only way to deter Iran is to abandon our ambiguity, nuclear ambiguity, and to move, to move towards unconcealed nuclear deterrence. And since in Israel we have censorship, as you know, I have to play the game. And when I refer to Israeli nuclear deterrence, Israeli nuclear weapons, Israeli nuclear submarines with nuclear missiles, it's all according to foreign sources. I don't know anything, and I have to use this phrase, according to foreign sources. But Israel has to change its policy and to move, as I said, to a nuclear deterrence and to, uh, with new rules of the game. And the other side which should know what are the rules of the game. There will be red lines that the Iranians will understand it. For example, if Israel will detect a ballistic missile launched in Iran going westerly, for Israel it will be the nuclear missiles. And in this case, Israel will not wait to see whether it is a nuclear missile or not. Automatically, Israel will launch its nuclear missiles, according to foreign sources, and it, Tehran, Tabriz, Qom, Isfahan, and so on and so on. And it should be clear to the other side what will happen. And then, the Ayatollahs in Tehran will have to decide whether to launch their missiles when they know exactly what will happen. What will happen that Iran will be destroyed and will go back to the Middle Ages. And I don't see any Iranian 
national interests that justify this cost. So I believe that, that we can deter them. I believe that the other team will use the argument of irrationality. We cannot deter these extremist Islam, uh, Muslim uh, ayatollahs. And if this is the case, we cannot deter them, then Netanyahu is right and we have to attack. But I don't think this is the, the case. Because if we'll have a, a very clear policy of nuclear deterrence, then the chances that the other side will use the weapons are very slim or not existent. For this, we'll have to change not just the policy, we have to show and declare our second strike capability in order to show the Iranians what we have. And again, according to foreign sources, we have submarines, dolphin class with uh, nuclear missiles. So we have, we have second strike capability, probably. So when they use the, 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 the argument of irrationality, everybody goes to the, the Cold War and say, the Atulas are not like the leaders of uh, the two superpowers. They are not rational. They are not going to act like the, the Soviet leaders or the American leaders, which is wrong, I believe, because if you can remember during the Cold War, how Stalin was perceived, perceived here in, 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 in the States, a madman that whenever he'll have, he'll have the bomb, is going to drop the bomb. And the Ayatollahs are not like this. And if it seems from professional and sober analysis that the Iranian will, if, if we'll uh, learn their way of thinking, their culture, their history, they are going to act like real uh, uh, rational leaders. We should understand that the development of uh, the Iranian nuclear weapons is not against Israel. It's based on their, their experience during the war, the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s, not against Israel. And it's very important to understand it, what is the base of their thinking about their nuclear program. And ironically, possession of uh, nuclear weapons may moderate the, the Iranian leadership, exactly what happened with the Chinese leadership in 64, when they got the, the, the nuclear weapons, and they started acting like a rational state. And another, another example is India and Pakistan. Only 23 seconds more? Well, now 19. <laughs> really? Well, now it's 15. So India and Pakistan, there, was, there were three wars after there was, they, they acquired the nuclear weapons in 98. About after a year, there was a, a Kargil crisis, and they act very rationally in order not to uh, deteriorate the situation and using the nuclear war. Ruben Petitor, your time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Our motion is that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, and here to speak against this motion, Jeffrey Goldberg. He is a national correspondent for The Atlantic and a columnist for Bloomberg View. Before joining The Atlantic, Goldberg was a Middle Eastern correspondent, a Middle East correspondent, and the Washington correspondent for The New Yorker. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey Goldberg. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, thank you to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for coming. Um, thank you, Ruvain. Um, I, as someone who's covered Pakistan extensively, I'm not going to sit here and make believe that I would hold up Pakistan as a model of stability and rational nuclear deterrence, but we can talk about that later. But uh, you, since you, you brought up the subject of uh, the nature of the Iranian uh, regime and what they believe and what they think and what they seek, let's talk about that for a, a minute. Uh, what we have in uh, it, it, right now in, in the world is, is, is a genuinely unprecedented situation, certainly unprecedented in the, in the post-World War II international order. We have a, a member state of the United Nations, the Islamic Republic of Iran, that actively calls for the destruction of another member state of the United Nations. That's, that is Israel. Uh, and, and, and they're very, very clear and consistent on this subject. Right from the beginning, of the Islamic Republic. I'll give you a couple of examples. This is from the supreme leader uh, of Iran, who, as his title suggests, is the supreme leader. He's the guy who sets the policy. Quote, this is from last February, the Zionist regime is a true cancer tumor on this region that should be cut off, and it definitely will be cut off. His feelings are echoed regularly in the, among the Iranian military and intelligence elite. I'll give you another example. General Golam Reza Jalali, the former commander of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, said last August that, quote, the fact is, is that there is no other way but to stand firm and resist until Israel is destroyed. General Hassan Ferozbadi, the chief of staff of the Iranian Armed Forces, said last May, and I quote, the Iranian nation is standing for its cause, which is the full annihilation of Israel. And finally, Mohammed Hassan Rahimian, who was a top aide to Khamenei, said in a January, tele January 2010 television interview, quote, we have manufactured missiles that allow us, when necessary, to replace Israel in its entirety with a big holocaust. Uh, Mr. Rahimian is the deputy minister for subtlety on the part, uh, in the Iranian regime. Um, Iranian opposition to Israel's existence is not only ideological and rhetorical. We have to remember that in addition to actually calling for the destruction of the Jewish state, the Iranian regime works to, to destroy individual Jews. Hezbollah, the, the, the Lebanese terror group, is a proxy of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. The rockets that it fires periodically into Israel are Iranian manufacture. Uh, the rockets that Hamas fires from Gaza very recently are, are Iranian rockets. Let's not forget, in the last year, you're, you, you have multiple examples around the world of Iranians trying to kill Israelis uh, in, in Bulgaria, in Azerbaijan, in Georgia, in Thailand. And, and let's not forget a, a, a fact I find very amazing, which is that the current defense minister of Iran is actually sought by international law enforcement authorities for direct complicity in the bombing of a Jewish community center in Argentina. Uh, so, so you're dealing with a regime that regularly calls for the annihilation of the Jewish state. You're dealing with a regime that seeks to destroy and kill individual Jews, and, and which begs the question, what would be the impact on Middle East stability and on the safety of Israel if this regime, which seeks the annihilation, states very plainly it seeks the annihilation of the Jewish state, were to gain a weapon that would help it actually bring about that annihilation. And, and, and that's the question that we're, we're dealing with today. Now, there are three ways to sort of deal with this dilemma, I think. The first is to, is to sort of say, 
yeah, you know, uh, uh, on the one hand, it's true that the Iranian regime is the foremost sponsor of terrorism in the world, and it denies the Holocaust while calling for a new Holocaust, and, and, it's, uh, and it executes people for being gay, and it threatens Christian pastors with execution uh, unless they convert to, to, to Islam, and, and it, 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 uh, it, it's responsible for a quarter of the American combat deaths in Iraq, and it hides the lead, many leaders of al-Qaeda within its borders. But on the other hand, no one's perfect. And, <laughs> and I'm sure that these you know, gay-hanging, Christian-persecuting, American-killing, Jew-hating mullahs, if they get hold of a bomb, will behave in a responsible, rational, and enlightened way. The, the second response uh, is what I call the, uh, for lack of a better term, the, uh, the Uncle Morty response. Because a lot of us have an Uncle Morty sitting in Boca who spends all day on the Internet uh, trying to prove that Barack Obama is Osama bin Laden's third cousin by marriage. And, and the Uncle Morty response, the Uncle Morty response is to say, uh, you know, it's, it's 1938 and, and the second Holocaust is beginning next Tuesday and we're all done and we're finished. The third response, and this is what I want to get into during the course of this debate, the third response is to acknowledge a couple of things. One is that, is that it isn't 1938. The Jewish people do not stand defenseless and naked before the world. Iran, the day after it gets a bomb, will probably not fire that single bomb at Israel. But it's also clear that, that, that Israel in a post-nuclear Iran Middle East is going to have a very, very hard time surviving. Three quick reasons why it's going to have a hard time surviving. My colleague in, in Shmuel in a few minutes is going to talk about why the Cold War models of mutual deterrence don't really apply in this situation. I'm going to talk about reasons that it's going to be difficult for Israel to survive even if there is no nuclear conflagration. The first is, 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 is very clear to, to everyone, including President Obama. The, the, day after, there's going to be, the day after Iran goes nuclear, there's going to be an arms race a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Uh, it's, it's, it, President Obama has warned about this. He said very explicitly that, that a nuclear arms race in the world's most volatile region is inherently destabilizing. So, so you're dealing with, in a few years' time, the possibility that four or five different countries that all hate each other are going to be pointing nuclear-tipped missiles at each other. That's not a recipe for stability or happiness. It's certainly not a recipe for stability for the Jewish state. Second reason... If you believe that Israel can only survive if it makes peace with its neighbors, then you will be opposed to the idea of Iran getting a nuclear bomb. Israel cannot survive in a Middle East in which America is a defeated and weakened ally. America is Israel's most important ally. If Iran trumps America, if Iran beats America by getting a nuclear weapon, it means that the Arab states that would pre predisposed to make peace with Israel, and we know the peace process is semi-moribund anyway, they will align with Iran because Iran is the winner of that conflict. The third and most obvious point is Hamas and Hezbollah even now periodically fire large numbers of rockets at Israeli civilians. Imagine the power that they will have when they can fire those rockets under the protection of the Iranian nuclear umbrella. Again, there is a real chance that an Iranian nuclear weapon would lead to a conflagration in the Middle East. Even without that conflagration, it becomes very, very hard to envision how Israel survives in the long term. And thank you very much. Thank you, Jeffrey Goldberg. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, who are arguing it out over this motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. You've heard two of the opening statements. 
And now on to the third, debating in support of the argument, James Dobbins. He is a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State and Special Envoy under the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. He is now Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center at the Rand Corporation. Ladies and gentlemen, James Dobbins. Well, just to remind us what we're debating about, the proposition is can Israel live with a nuclear Iran? Can Israel survive a nuclear Iran? The answer to that question is yes. You don't need to be absolutely certain it will survive. In fact, technically, you don't even think it has to be probable that it will survive, just that it's possible that it will survive. And I think both of the opposition will acknowledge that it's possible it will survive. Indeed, indeed, Jeff said that they'd have a hard time, which implicitly indicates that there's a good possibility they'd survive it. It'd just be harder. But, but so, I mean, I think if you debate at that level, it's pretty clear. Um, there's almost nobody who thinks that Israel's demise will be automatic and certain. Uh, it's the question of risk. And so I think, in a sense, the real debate is, should Israel live with a nuclear Iran? And the answer is, not if they can help it. Obviously, nobody thinks a nuclear Iran is a good idea, and we're already doing a lot to try to prevent it. We have uh, a massive, probably unprecedented international sanctions regime, an active, if so far uh, unproductive, diplomatic process, um, a a very active and somewhat successful covert um, sabotage effort, uh, and uh, uh, cyber attacks. Now, these may work in some combination, but I'd have to acknowledge that they may not. Um, And so the remaining question is, um, uh, should should one, if these fail, go to war to prevent Israel, uh, prevent uh, Iran from gaining a nuclear weapon? Uh, And I think, although that's not precisely what we're debating, it does tend to be, the, the issue does tend to revolve around that. Now, the threshold for saying yes, that we should go to war to prevent uh, Israel from, uh, uh, Iran from gaining a nuclear weapon, really has to go, uh, there are two thresholds. One is efficacy, and one is unintended consequences. You need to look at both. In terms of efficacy, I think most experts believe that an Israeli attack on Iran would set the program back by perhaps two years, that an American attack would be more effective and would set it back by maybe four or five years. Um, it wouldn't prevent it. Um, but it would uh, slow it down. Um, what about the unintended consequences? Well, there's, most people are concerned about uh, the possibility of counterattacks. Uh, Iran begins uh, rocketing Israel, uh, Israeli nuclear facilities, um, terrorist attacks. Um, but in many ways, the more dangerous response is, first of all, that, that, a, that an unprovoked attack on Iran validates their case for a nuclear uh, weapon, for a nuclear deterrence. Um, Pac- uh, North Korea doesn't suffer those kinds of attacks. Um, Pakistan doesn't suffer those kinds of attacks. Uh, and uh, many in the world and in Iran um, will come around to the view that maybe Iran actually needs a nuclear weapon. Um, a second consequence is, that you begin to collapse the international coalition that so far has made Iran a pariah state that has cut off its access to international markets, international, uh, not just nuclear technology, but any kind of military technology, and increasingly uh, even uh, cut back dramatically its oil sales. Uh, And as a result, Iran gains access 
um, to the world economy. Uh, it uh, breaks out of its isolation and even perhaps uh, certainly gains access to sophisticated military technology. Uh, in, the, in the aftermath of an attack, wouldn't Russia be prepared to sell uh, Iran the kind of uh, air defense systems, which so far it's refused to sell um, Iran, and perhaps even uh, nuclear technology from states like uh, Pakistan or others, North Korea. Um, the, uh, I, I think in evaluating these consequences, one has to go back to the question of what is it that we, and for that matter most Israelis, fear about Iran. And I think Jeff has uh, pretty much answered that question. It's not Iranian invasion. It's Iranian subversion. It's Iran's capacity to appeal to militant uh, elements within uh, neighboring populations, dissident elements within neighboring populations, uh, in order to galvanize their efforts both against their own regimes in many cases uh, and against uh, and against Israel. Um, so it's, it's, it's Israeli, it's, I'm sorry, it's Iranian influence, it's Iranian capacity for subversion. It's not that Iran is going to march across two intervening states and invade Israel. That is of concern. And the fear is that they would be emboldened and they'd do more of this. But I think you have to ask yourself, which, uh, which kind of Iran would have more influence with these dissident populations, not with governments, but with dissident populations in places like um, Gaza and um, uh, Lebanon uh, and other uh, Middle East states, an Iran that had nuclear weapons or an Iran that was uh, the victim of an unprovoked attack? Which of those two would give Iran greater influence and capacity to, to mobilize those kinds of populations? Um, I, I think the answer to that is fairly clear. Now, I, I, the argument that Iran would be emboldened by possessing a nuclear weapon is certainly, I think, a real danger, but it's far from a certainty. It's not the historic pattern. You know, our major problems with the Soviet Union and, and particularly with China occurred before they had nuclear weapons. You know, the Soviet Union gobbled up all of Eastern Europe before it had nuclear weapons. We had nuclear weapons. They didn't. China actually attacked the United States and Korea and made a two-year war with the United States and Korea. They didn't have nuclear weapons. We did. Once they got nuclear weapons, we didn't have any more wars. Now, we had lots of confrontations, but they were eventually um, uh, diffused. Um, uh, both North Korea and Pakistan do behave irresponsibly on occasion, uh, but there is a certain stability in their relations with India, Pakistan's relations with India, North Korea's relations with South Korea. There haven't been conflicts in either case. So the argument that they'd be emboldened to the point of actually threatening to use nuclear weapons or using nuclear weapons or even engaging in the kind of behavior that they're not engaging in now, and I think if you listen to Jeff's list of all the things they're doing, you'd have to ask, well, what the hell else could they do that they're not already doing? And I think the answer is uh, not much. Thank you, James Dobbins. Our motion is that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And now our final debater, who will be speaking against the motion, Shmuel Barr. He is the Director of Studies at the Institute of Policy and Strategy in Herzliya. He is also a Senior Research Fellow uh, for the International Institute for Nonproliferation Studies. Shmuel, you can start making your way to the lectern. He served for 30 years in the Israeli government, in the Israeli Defense Forces Intelligence, and in the office of the Prime Minister. Ladies and gentlemen, Shmuel Barr. Thank you. Um, 
First of all, I won't go into the post-tax scenarios that were brought up, but suffice to say that I could offer more optimistic scenarios. When you shuffle a deck of cards, then you play a completely new game. I recall that when we took out the Iraqi reactor, we thought it would delay it for three years, but it took about 10 years, and the Iraqis did not uh, get back to the level that they were before we took out the, um, the Aussie-Iraq. Now, the arguments that are brought up, the rational actor model, which I've already made some remark as a historian about, and the idea that deterrence works, and the other, the Cold War uh, paradigm can be applied. I would argue that we have to look at both of these assumptions in a completely different manner. First of all, the rational actor model. Uh, Somebody, not me, McNamara, said that Castro was a rational man, Khrushchev was a rational man, Kennedy was a rational man, and three rational men almost brought their nations into utter destruction. And that was without any, I mean, Che Guevara said that it would be that if uh, Cuba had to be destroyed in order to destroy uh, destroy capitalism, then Cuba would be thankful for that. But uh, in other words, rational people sometimes do things, or the dynamics between rational people, rational leaders, sometimes leads to things which are not rational. The other thing is that strategic surprises have happened. I don't think there's anybody here who would debate the fact that strategic surprises have happened. And when they happen, they happen because uh, things that hordes of analysts and pundits and journalists have said are completely impossible because it is irrational that people will act that way, but they happened. So the fact is that uh, these surprises happen and they reflect uh, dynamics which were not a uh, pure uh, game theory uh, rational, uh, rational uh, behavior. Now, the other thing is that if nuclear weapons make countries uh, more responsible, then I would propose that the United States, which wants to uh, reduce its nuclear uh, arsenal, should now just divvy out all of the American nuclear weapons to the whole world, and then everybody will become very responsible, very rational, and peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Uh, now, now to the Cold War paradigm. The Cold War paradigm, let's define what it was. It was bilateral. It was a paradigm which from a certain stage had mutually assured destruction with each party having a, uh, a second strike capability. It was with levels of intelligence that when these, both of the United States and Soviet Union acquired that capability, the second strike capability, they also had satellites in the sky, so they had a reasonable picture of what was going on in the silos of the respective enemies. There were mutual communications after uh, Cuba, and there was also a perception of a taboo after Hiroshima. Now, When we're talking about a nuclear Iran, we have to understand we are talking about a polynuclear Middle East. The the Shiite uh, Shiite, nuclear Shiite Iran is going to be perceived by the Sunni countries as something that cannot be countenanced, that they are going to have to acquire their own nuclear weapons. In a polynuclear Middle East where every country has a very small arsenal, they do not have mutually assured destruction. They have a sort of arsenal which is use it or lose it. If we are attacked, then we won't have a second chance. We are going to have multiple nuclear states with these small arsenals with very low levels of intelligence. They won't have satellite intelligence or very clear picture of what the real uh, intentions of their enemy uh, are. Um, 
the size of the arsenals, uh, it's better to have a lot of bombs than a few bombs because then, of course, you have the, the propensity to say, well, if I don't use it now, I won't have a second chance. Um, but then I want to go into something which has to do with command and control. And this is a very esoteric area. But in order to prevent unintentional use of nuclear weapons or use of nuclear weapons without total control over the process of what's called escalation dominance, you have to have very sophisticated capabilities. When you look at the command and control structures in the various countries of the Middle East and the paradigms which existed in the Cold War countries, you actually discover that most of the key elements which were instrumental in preventing nuclear uh, confrontation during the Cold War do not exist in the Middle East and cannot exist for various reasons, some of them because of the military culture, the political culture, etc. Issues such as verification of authority, um, separation of uh, authority over the delivery systems and the weapons, all of those things which made it more difficult suddenly to rush into nuclear confrontation. Things like uh, permissive action links which prevented unintentional use. So all put together, we are talking about a very volatile region. We're talking about uh, a possibility that not because uh, Khomeini gets up in the morning and says, oh, what a lovely day, isn't it a great day to drop a bomb, but that because he, the Iranians do a nuclear alert, the Saudis don't know whether it's uh, directed against them, Israel sees Saudi Arabia and, uh, uh, and Iran and Turkey on nuclear alert, everybody goes on DEFCON, and uh, things get out of hand because none of these countries have the capability to, uh, to uh, control this spiral of escalation. Uh, now we're talking about something which is, even if we say it's low probability, but low probability, high consequence. And this is where we stand on that. In other words, uh, we can say, oh, there's a 10% possibility that this will result in nuclear confrontation. Well, 10% probability of total destruction is something that you have to think about. Um, so putting all of that together, I think that I would agree with McNamara that rational uh, actors or rational leaders do not guarantee complete rational processes. And as a final note, um, we also have to address the issue of the taboo of nuclear weapons. Uh, religious uh, experts in Iran and in the Sunni world all ask themselves, what is a nuclear bomb? Since there can be nothing which the Prophet Muhammad didn't speak about, they have decided that a nuclear bomb is like a catapult. It's just a big catapult. Because a catapult used to be thrown over the walls of a city and you didn't see who it killed, so it's indiscriminate killing. Well, that's like a nuclear weapon. Uh, I think that uh, somebody who sees a nuclear weapon like a catapult... Sorry, sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now we go on to round two where the debaters address each other directly and answer questions from you in the audience and from me. We have two teams of two, uh, James Dobbins and Reuven Pedetsur, um, who are arguing for the motion that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Um, Their argument is that much as... um, the U.S. learned to live with a nuclear China. 
Israel can do the same, that it's not desirable. They're not saying that. But they're also saying it doesn't mean that the sky is necessarily falling. Um, they portray Iran's leaders as not crazy, as is sometimes claimed. Um, they're saying that the Iranians will not want a nuclear war any more than the Israelis. Um, and by the way, they say that attacking Iran to destroy its nuclear program would only strengthen Iran's influence and make it harder to contain than ever. Jeffrey Goldberg and Shmuel Bar arguing against the motion, um, saying the risks to Israel are unacceptable. They, they have not, uh, in their statements, promoted an attack on Iran, which they point out uh, is not the premise of the debate, but they are depa- depicting drastic uh, consequences for Israel if a state that hates it as much as the Iranians say they hate Israel would get its hands on a nuclear weapon. Uh, they say it would be a defeat uh, for, uh, for the good guys, it could set off an arms race in the region, um, nukes could reach terrorist hands. And bottom line, um, two or three bombs alone could destroy all of Israel. It's, it's not the Cold War folks in that sense. So those are essentially the arguments that the two sides are making. And I just want to uh, start off the questions by getting to this notion of the, um, of the moderating influence of having a nuclear weapon that Ruven Petitsur uh, talked about. He talked about the fact that when, when China and when Mao got the bomb uh, in 1964, uh, that he became a lot less, quote-unquote, crazy in that sense that he was depicted and thought of in the West, uh, that he became a lot more sober-minded as a geopolitical thinker and strategist, because, presumably because of the stakes. And I just want to put that to the other side uh, and take it to Jeffrey Goldberg first. Um, the, the notion that in, you, you addressed it a little bit in your response, but I would just like a little bit uh, more detail in, in recognizing what his argument actually is, that things did change in China at that time. So take on that question, Jeffrey Goldberg. Well, I, first I would say that there's only a limited amount of knowledge we can gain um, by analogizing the Chinese, Chinese Communist Party of 1965 with the mullahs who rule the theocratic authoritarian state of Iran in 2013. I, I really I don't want to stretch this to the breaking point, and I feel like that, that does stretch it to the breaking point. Yes, it's possible. It's possible that Iran will become suddenly a responsible party, but it is revolutionary in nature. I think by the time China reached nuclear status, it, had been, it, it, it was growing into something else. Iran's specific goal is to export the Islamic Revolution throughout the Muslim world. Its specific goal is to destroy Israel. Its specific goal is to liberate Bahrain. Um, a country that has all of these goals, which gains a nuclear weapon, is not going to suddenly say, all right, now that we have the weapon that will finally allow us to do all of the things that we've been telling you we want to do, we're not going to do it. Okay, Ruven Petitsor, Jeffrey Goldberg saying that Iran is not China of 1964 in significant ways. Iran is not China, I agree. So we can Absolutely, go home Absolutely, but... <laughs> But China is not alone. Let's talk about India, Pakistan. Let's see that uh, South Korea lives under the shadow of North Korea nuclear umbrella. So it happens to every leadership that acquired. The, and, and what do you think happens to them? And I want to take your answer back to Because Jeffrey. they know what is the, the price of using the, the, the weapons. There is no winning in nuclear war. So in this case, they, they, they know exactly what will happen, and that, that's make okay. them... So let, Jeffrey, let me give you an example. We're talking about the, the Iranians, that they are irrational. Let's talk about Khomeini. He was very extremist, right? In 1980, when the war with Iran began, erupted, he said that he'll never sign a ceasefire agreement with Iraq until they surrendered. In 1988, they started 
launching missiles, conventional missiles in Tehran, thousands of people dead, and he signed an agreement because the, the price was too high. And we are talking about conventional missiles, not nuclear missiles. Okay, so Jeffrey, Reuven gave you the logic behind his, his analogy of China, that the, the gravity of the, the damage, the destruction that the weapons can do will change any leader's thinking. Well, first of all, let me come back to Pakistan, because I've done a lot of reporting on Pakistan. Pakistan is moving away from minimal deterrence. We know that Pakistan now is mating its weapons and putting them on mobile launchers. So I, I would caution not to use Pakistan as a great model for Why where we're going. Kargil, but, but, Kargil crisis, I'm just for saying, example. But let me, let, me just, let me just also say this. I think we're actually also talking about the wrong thing. The thing that I worry about more than... Are you doing, are you doing a subject change what? to avoid the question? I am not avoiding the question. <laughs> okay. What? All right. Well, no, no, but I'm not avoiding I know I'm going directly at the question by changing the question. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I don't... I, 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 just, I just think he gave you the logic... Sure. And it's got some power sure. to it. And sure, I but let me answer it. the question by saying I don't necessarily think that Ayatollah Khamenei is going to one day wake up and decide to launch a preemptive nuclear strike on Israel because he wants to destroy Israel. What I'm much more concerned about is accidental escalation leading to an all-out nuclear war. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. What happened two months ago? Hamas fires rockets into Israel. Israel fires back. Hamas escalates. Israel then escalates. Imagine if Iran was in the picture with a nuclear weapon right now. No, just imagine this. Imagine that Iran, in response to Israel's escalation, decides to move warheads closer to their missile launching sites. And the American satellites so, see this. You're in a, you'll be living in a Middle East of launch on warning. You'll be living in a situation in which the Israeli prime minister is going to say, the, the Iranians are moving their missiles to strike us in defense of Hamas. What do I do? We know Jim, that the prime Jim minister Dobbins already wants in. to do this. Let Jim Dobbins respond to that. Well, I, I don't think the Israeli counterstrike is vulnerable. I mean, the Israelis have nuclear weapons that can't be located, can't be destroyed. Jim, could you come just a touch um, closer to your mic? And so I think that, that, that launch on warning is not uh, a necessary strategy for the Israelis. Um, it you might mean, be wait until tem- Tel Aviv is it, bombed and then launch against Iran? I, I think they would. Uh, it, it, I mean, it would obviously depend on the circumstances. If they thought There's they, only three cities if in Israel the could size succ- of Staten Island. I mean, Jeffrey, it's going to be, on, yeah. I'm going to let him answer. I mean, you know, the United States was just as vulnerable as Israel. We had 24,000 nuclear weapons uh, uh, locked in on us. They would have damaged us just as badly as half a dozen on Israel. The the result would have been the same, and it probably would have been worse for the rest of the world. Indeed, it it would have been catastrophic for the world as a whole. Uh, And we lived with that for 40 years. And all of these problems of launch on warning. Now, I, I quite take the fact that, that, that these regimes don't have the control mechanisms, the command and control, or even the technologies that will, uh, that will make this a safer world. And so I, you know, I fully acknowledge that there's an element of risk there. I fully acknowledge that Israel shouldn't live with a nuclear Iran if there's a better option. I'm just arguing that there may not be a better option. Shmulabar. Yeah, well, first of all, regarding uh, rationalism in Khomeini, Khomeini, uh, two years after the Iraqi invasion of Iran, he could have signed a, uh, a, 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 an agreement, he could have stopped the war, but he continued with the war. And the reason that he finally uh, uh, agreed to a ceasefire was because the Revolutionary Guards actually imposed it on him. The other thing is that Iran isn't unlike China, which was going through a process when it acquired nuclear weapons of China, was already moderating its revolutionary zeal. The, uh, Iran is going through what we would call the second uh, generation of the revolution. I mean, we're already in the sort of uh, 
um, a Robespierre-style uh, 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 second generation of the, of the Iranian revolution, going back to the pure concepts of the revolution. Uh, now, but that really isn't the, uh, the real issue here. Um, the real issue here, I think, is that uh, analogies are absolutely irrelevant. You never walk into the same stream in the same place twice, and certainly when one stream is in China and the other is in the Middle East. Secondly, uh, the dynamics of multilateral uh, nuclear states is completely different to the dynamics of two main Let powers. Let me remind you, it was not bilateral. It, it was, was bilateral. trilateral. No, it, no, China it, was no, no, there China, from 64. China never had the strategic capabilities of the Soviet Union and the Chinese didn't have the missile capabilities at the time, and most of the Cold War was clearly a uh, Warsaw Pact against the NATO, against NATO. It was clearly bilateral. So the fact that nominally you also had Britain and France, etc., and you had China, that did not make it multilateral. So it doesn't matter, though, because we're not talking, uh, and uh, as a historian, I find it difficult to discuss analogies because uh, we think that historians tend to think that uh, God is in the details. And the details of the Middle East are that uh, we will have multi, uh, a polynuclear Middle East where we will have a Sunni world which is going to see an, uh, a, a Shiite nuclear power as an existential threat to the Sunni world. Anybody who's read the bestseller in Saudi Arabia of the Protocols of the Elders of Qom, which tells how the elders of Qom want to destroy Mecca and Medina, realize that they see this as existential as well. And so we have to understand that this is the situation, and this situation does not augur well for stability. All right, let me, let me put a different, uh, bring in a different strain of the argument here. Uh, to the side that's arguing that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, your opponents have pointed out that the specific rhetoric of the Iranian regime has discussed a deep aspiration to see Israel gone, wiping Israel off the map. Rufin Petitsur, why not take that absolutely literally? By the way, they've never threatened Israel with uh, nuclear weapons. Never. Never. You, you never find... Very quickly, very quickly. No, no, because... Do you concede that point no, that they have never threatened no, 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 to use nuclear weapons not, against I, I Israel? They, they, actually, they don't I, admit that they are developing the, ne- the, no, the no, weapons, no. so how they can they threaten? They have alluded to that, and they, anybody who, uh, who reads the materials coming out of uh, uh, media which is uh, related to the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. I'm not even going back to Rafsanjani with his famous statement, but uh, the uh, but, uh, very senior Iranian people connected to, uh, to Khamenei have made allusions which could clearly be uh, understood. That. All right, that's different from Reuben is saying they've never explicitly said we well, will well, get well, a nuclear ex- weapon and use it if, to destroy if, Israel. If the Ayatollah Khamenei's aide, Rahimian, is saying that he's going to replace Israel with a big holocaust, I don't think they're putting pumpkins on the catapults. You know, I mean, I don't think you have to stretch so it. So th- this is their know. rhetoric. This is their rhetoric for other reasons. They are right. not going to so, so you're saying that they, they don't mean it? If they could do it, they, they would have done it. But they don't mean that they're going to use the, the nuclear weapons in order to achieve this goal. No, no way. I, 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 I beg to differ. I, just, uh, I think that one of the problems, and this I must say, uh, here I, I'm co- uh, um, we as Israelis tend to believe people who, think that, who say that they want to exterminate us. We have some very 
very good historic uh, precedents that people said that somebody said they want to exterminate us and they tried to do it. So, you, so I, I don't, I, so I, I, don't believe, I don't believe in rhetoric. I think that rhetoric it becomes action when it can become action. Ruben so you believe that the minute they have their weapons, no, they try no, to destroy that. Israel? No, I didn't say that. I said that uh, given circumstances in which uh, there will be escalation, that no party in this region will be able to prevent, uh, will have a dominance. I don't agree, dominance. because what will happen is what, what, what happened between the two. Superpowers. It, it Means of communication will develop. Let me, let it me took bring, time to I, the two we superpowers. We haven't heard from Jim Dobbins in a couple minutes. And Jim, for you also this question. If the Iranians are so explicit about their desire to see Israel gone, whether they use an active verb or a passive verb, should the Israelis not take that literal, with literal seriousness? And can you come close to your mic on your answer? I mean, I, mean, I think what... A benign explanation, and I'm not arguing that, there, that one should necessarily accept a benign explanation, is that the Iranians are simply arguing for a multi-ethnic state encompassing all of historic Israel um, to include the West Bank, um, uh, which is the, the Hamas position, for instance. It's not that the Israelis should go away. It's that Israel should go away and that a multi-ethnic state encompassing both Palestinians and Israelis should continue to exist. Interestingly enough, there are extremists but viable parties in Israel who also think that the Israeli state should encompass all of the West Bank. Okay. So the difference is that they think it should be a Jewish state, whereas the Iranians so would argue it should be a multi-ethnic state. Uh, well, Jeffrey Goldberg. Uh, just very briefly on that. What, what happened was I- Israel's enemies realized that talking about pushing the Jews into the sea was not really a great PR strategy. Right. So what they did was they changed the language and they said, we don't want to push the Jews in the sea. We just want to get rid of Israel as a Jewish homeland and let everybody live there together. Um, but then they also say, as the Ayatollahs say, all the Jews who aren't from there have to go back to where they're from, which leads to these incredible statements. And I heard this from, from many the Jews should go back. The Jews from Germany should go back to Germany. The Jews from Poland should go but back Jeffrey, to Poland. But, Jeffrey, I think what Jim saying is that, the, is that, is that the, you could interpret the, and I'm not saying this facetiously, the Iranians are they're, they're not saying we will kill you. They're saying we want you dead. Which is not exactly the same uh, thing. Uh, which has to do with no, we don't. We, 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 we want we want a lot of you dead, and we certainly want your country and your dream of a Jewish homeland dead. So you know, to Israelis and to Jewish people, but it means would they be the agents of that killing? Were they able to get away with it? But uh, they I, already I just, tried. I, I just want they to already know. Tried. I, I good, good, the good, good about answer. Hamas. They go, they I, don't I think that get Hamas away was with it. mentioned. They already wait, wait, wait. Uh, I love it when everybody's talking. Yeah. Once it's so I, exciting, I but that, yeah. we need to, <laughs> I know we need to have some order. To, well, you go thing, first, Shmuel, yeah. then you, Ruben. I know a thing or two about Hamas, and I, I, I read their websites avidly. Maybe that's an aberration. And on their main website, they have constantly the hadith from the Prophet saying that the last day will not come until the Muslims kill all the Jews, and the last Jew will hide behind a rock or a stone, and the rock will call out, Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me, come and kill him. Now, I don't call this a multi-ethnic, uh, a multi-ethnic state. Uh, uh, wait, have you uh, seen and this is constantly, and they have these uh, on their TV, you have children 
called up to quote it and they get prizes for quoting things like that. Uh, uh, have you that. seen the Rose website of uh, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef? It what he's talking about? But, look, 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 we're not arguing, by the way, that the Lubavitcher should get nuclear weapons. I mean, you know, I, I, have, no, this. I have a general... I have a general predisposition against letting nutjob religious fundamentalists, that's the technical it term, will be nice if they don't of all have stripes the... get hold of nuclear weapons. It's a pretty simple point. It's very nice if they don't have their weapons, but if they'll have, then what? If then they what? Have, yes. I think we already described what, what could happen. I'm going to come to you the in Israel the audience. Israel will have our time. <clears throat> I'm going to come to you in the audience for questions uh, shortly. I just want you to get ready. Folks, if you're upstairs, I won't be able to call on you, but if you want to ask a question, come on down and just stand in the back, and I'll see that you came downstairs, and I'll try to call on you for making the effort. Uh, I would really urge you to make these questions really, really brief and to, and to form them as questions not debating points, but as questions. And you'll know it's a question if a question mark goes at the end of what you say. Um, and, and that it be on this point. We're not debating whether the uh, Israeli government should launch an attack on Iran. We're trying to debate a, a little bit, as has been put before, as the day after. What would be the consequences for Israel of uh, Iran getting a nuclear weapon? And so as you're getting ready to do that, I just want to go back to the side that's arguing that Israel cannot live with a, a nuclear weapon. And point out uh, that your opponent, Jim Dobbins, made the point that he, he asked, what actually would the Iranians be able to start doing that they're not already doing in terms of killing Jews around the world and in terms of uh, encouraging attacks from Hamas and Hezbollah and being generally mischievous and deadly? What, what would be different if they had a nuclear weapon? Jeffrey Goldberg. They, they have limitless escalation. Like I said, if Hamas has the protection of the nuclear umbrella, the Iranian nuclear umbrella, it can be much bolder than it is today. Israel will then have to Doing fear, what? More what? than 1,000 missiles? Yeah. 20,000? Yeah. No, they don't Hezbollah have. has 50,000 missiles sitting in Lebanon in pointed Lebanon. at Israel right no. now. Jim Dobbins, it right was your now. point. Let's hear your response to it. Please. But, you know, I mean, quoting from extremist websites is one thing, but as far as I know, the largest Jewish population in the Middle East that doesn't live in Israel lives in Iran. Jewish population in the Middle East that doesn't live in Israel lives in Iran. No, I think they're in Israel. The largest Jewish population that doesn't live in Israel in the Middle East lives in Iran. Got it. So if they wanted to start killing Jews, they'd have an easy opportunity. The Jews in Iran are under what it's called Vimi. They are under protection. That's something else. But, but Jim, I just before you get to that, Jim, I want you to get back. I want I want you to defend your opening point that Jeffrey just refuted. That Iran, Iran having a nuclear weapon wouldn't be doing much more than it's already doing. He says yes, they would because they could, they could escalate with under protection. Nuclear weapons are extremely useful to deter people from using other nuclear weapons or from destroying their regime. There was one option that the United States would lose if Iran had a nuclear weapon, which it's lost with respect to North Korea, um, and that is to invade and overthrow the regime. We, that would be off the table. We might do other things to them. We've got 5,000 nuclear weapons. They've got two or three. There's almost nothing we could do to them short of threatening to overthrow the regime, which would cause them to use their nuclear weapons. 
Um, and I think Israel and, and, uh, has never had the capacity of invading and overthrowing the regime. Uh, and it, Israel's not going to use its nuclear weapons to respond to rocket attacks from Hamas. Um, uh, it's got other conventional responses to that, which it can fall back on, whether Iran has nuclear weapons or not. And Iran is not going to start a nuclear war to protect Hamas. I totally disagree that uh, nuclear weapons are only for deterrence. They actually have only been used for deterrence in, in a very limited case uh, that we know of the Cold War. But nuclear weapons can be used for compellents. And uh, if you imagine Iran having a certain window of opportunity when the rest of the Middle East has not acquired nuclear weapons, and they do have an agenda. The Iranians are making it clear, uh, actually, they've, uh, they've escalated their rhetoric about Bahrain being part of Iran, which was stolen by the Brits. They would probably take advantage of it to brandish nuclear weapons as a, uh, as a means of compellence in order to get the level of hegemony in the Gulf and in the Middle East before the rest of the countries do acquire nuclear weapons. So I think that that is the most likely scenario. So it's not only what they could do against Israel, but what they do against Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, trying so, to, uh, so, and so uh, oil. And without, uh, without arguing that it's impossible, the, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to argue so, it's impossible. So there's no historic, there's no historic example of successful compellence since 1945. There's no case in which a nuclear power used its nuclear power to compel some other country. Powers. Britain and France got thrown out of every single colony they had in the world while they we were nuclear powers, and, and, their, but and their colonial powers analogies weren't. Analogies of such small sets have absolutely no scientific uh, rever- relevance. You know, you but you, you say that I, I'm, I'm bothered. Years, I'm bothered by that. I'm bothered by that because that gives us nothing to talk about from history. <laughs> right. I mean, history no. is. I mean, all we, we we've, we've got to we've got to look back to some degree. I, I mean, it's yes, your response but, every time. Every time they bring up something from history, you say it's irrelevant. No, no. From history, you can bring up things from history, but you have to bring up things from relevant history in a relevant region, in relevant uh, circumstances and culture. So what, what is relevant? Between the United States and the Soviet Union, France and Britain. Uh, what have, is relevant? has nothing to do with what happens in a region where uh, people... I think we're having an Israeli moment here. Well, what is Je- relevant? Jeffrey, Jeffrey, said, <laughs> Jeffrey said that Israel will have hard time. We always have hard time. No, so look, nothing I, will change. Yeah, you always have a hard time. Some of it's self-inflicted. Some of it's inflicted from outside. The proportion of the stuff that's going to be inflicted from outside is going to grow much greater. You know, and Jim Dobbins is right. I mean, he's right. The day after Iran gets a nuke, you know, chances are Israel will still survive. I mean, and, but, and, 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 it's, and it's a remote possibility that Israel could survive two or three or four years. But so I really do believe, I really do believe that in a, a Iran getting a nuclear weapon, and by the way, we're not, it's, not the, it's not the Israelis who believe this. It's the U.S. that believes this. Well, Jeffrey, you said two or three years Israel would survive? I think, look, I believe that every three to four, let's say every three to four years, there's another confrontation between Israel and one of Iran's proxies on its northern border or its southern border. That is nothing the to next do. time there's one of these conflicts, I'm afraid that they're going to spin out of control. By that point, Saudi Arabia might have nukes. Turkey might have nukes. Egypt might have nukes. I don't see this as, as President Obama said repeatedly, that is, you know, to introduce so many nuclear weapons into such a small space that is already politically unstable, politically volatile, is a recipe for disaster. So, so when Jim Dobbins said this debate isn't literally saying Israel can survive, you actually are taking it literally, that you think Israel cannot survive. Oh, I read the instruction sheet wrong? Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> um, no, I, I, believe that, I believe that it makes it, that it, makes it 
the very, demo- very, the dem- I, I, look, Israel, why does Israel survive and thrive now? It survives because it's an immigration nation. Who's going to immigrate to a country that's on a hair-trigger nuclear alert that lives under this Iranian nuclear umbrella? Who it, immigrated it survived, to the United States? It survives States. because of investment. Who's going to build a billion-dollar chip plan in Israel if they think that that chip plan is going to be blown up in a nuclear war? Who immigrated I mean, to gonna, the United States, Jeffrey, with 25,000 missiles aimed at every target in the States? Yeah. Uh, but, but it was never the the, the level. And I hope the, that we'll survive more than three years. The level of the level of conflict was we never. I may have assumed, but you know. Uh, you know, you should survive forever, and that's what we're talking about. And and I just don't see I don't see the Middle East that's polynuclear as a hospitable place for it's a small Jewish a nice state that already has multiple dysfunctions. I agree. It's not a nice neighborhood. There, there's no autumn. <laughs> There's no Jim automaticity Dobbins. to the, the next debate. Wait, J- Jim Dobbins. Jim, I, Jim, I just need nice you near the mic. We can't hear you. Yeah, there's no automaticity to the idea that, that 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 Iran's gaining nuclear weapons is going to proliferate. It's a risk, like these other things, and it's and it's a risk that the U.S. takes seriously, which is one of the reasons why it's threatened to bomb Iran. Um, uh, it's not as if there's a, a gulf between the Israeli leadership and the leadership in Washington, they both agree that they should bomb Iran rather than allow it to have nuclear weapons. They just disagree about when. Let's hear your questions. Front row, gentlemen, right here. And uh, just rise. And we also need uh, folks, because of the radio broadcast, also hold the mic about uh, that distance from your mouth and tell us your name and ask your question. Sure. My name is Randy Slifka. And uh, Mr. Dobbins, the answer to your question is to mow the grass. That's what can be done. But I just want to follow up on Mr. Goldberg's uh, line of thinking, which is the economic analysis, which is how many uh, thousands of people will actually, human capital, will leave Israel? How much actual capital, billions of dollars? Who is going to actually invest in Israel, given the fact there is no margin for error? And not only do you have explicitly nuclear weapons pointed at you, but you also have the danger of dirty bombs and technology transfer okay. within the country. That's a great city question, and it was really well done, let me just you know, say. I mean, That's the model. Go ahead, know, Jim Dobbins. I mean, the United States had a peer competitor that had, in many cases, more nuclear weapons than we did. People invested. We had huge immigration. People went to New York and Washington, and they knew that they were going to be exterminated if there was a war. They were right in the hair trigger. Whatever, wherever else the bombs felt, they were going to fail there. Did it stop building? Did it stop immigration? First, first of all, there's a difference in margin of safety. Wait, wait. Why? That's for these Why guys. Why is there a difference? They're, they're, they're the debaters. <laughs> Why is there a difference? Jeffrey, you have to say, first of all, there's a margin of safety issue. <clears throat> no, seriously, I just want your question to provoke them. It's a great question, though, Jeffrey. Um, am I supposed to deal with just the, the, the no, no. economic issue? No, no, you're, you're to respond to their response. Uh, I'd let Shmuel do that. All right, Shmuel. <laughs> Okay. If you want to pass, um, you can. I, I don't know no, if no, everybody. Has the yeah, I, I don't know if everybody will leave Israel. I'll probably be the one who turns off the lights at uh, <laughs> Ben Gurion Airport. But uh, I, I think it is absolutely ridiculous and absurd to compare a situation in which a country which is, uh, has declared that it wants to exterminate a state, the state of Israel has nuclear weapons as opposed to the balance which existed post-Cuba between the United States and the Soviet Union, even though they both had nuclear weapons. It, it's, uh, you can make those analogies, but they have absolutely nothing to do with not reality. It, it's, not, it's not a real analogy. Uh, and I, I, I think that it would certainly have an effect. By the way, an interesting poll in Israel uh, was taken, and people were asked, will you leave the country if uh, Iran gets a nuclear weapon? It turned out that whereas somewhere around 30% of the Jews said they would think about it, 
70% of the Israeli Arabs said they would think about it. All right. I, you know, you're, the part of your question that was really good that you were getting on your follow-up didn't get asked. So go, Mike is back to you. Margin of error question. Well, well, first of all, Stand up, please, if you know Well, first of all, it is obviously an issue of a dirty bomb or the fact there's no geographic margin of error. But I really think that you've ignored the key issue, or the, which I was trying to address in terms of my question, which is the actual capital which has been invested in Israel. Who is going to actually invest continuously in a country where you have a, the threat of existential okay. destruction? Right. And in think- fact, was what a follow-up. The Israeli economy has been thriving and has been doing tremendously well. But given the fact that if there is this threat that's going on, the risk of an incremental investment there okay. is just we, tremendous. We get it. Thanks. Uh, do you want to take that, Ruben? I mean, it's a good question. Who, who's going to keep going to Israel and investing in Israel? First of all, Jim gave a, a, an absolutely brilliant By comparing it to the answer. States? But who is investing in a country when each there are 60,000 missiles aimed at? Who invests in Israel these days? You, but I, we, I don't think you can compare I, conventional rockets to nuclear weapons. Of Wait course not. I, you, you had a lot of subtext there. And <laughs> so can you draw out what your point was? I believe You put it in a rhetorical question that none of us could answer. I believe that most... <laughs> so, so make your point more explicitly. I believe that most of the Israelis will stay in Israel, even if there will be... A nuclear is your point that Israel is already kind of a nasty neighborhood and there are already yes. Hamas and rockets landing and people are already investing I in I don't it. like our okay. neighbors. But Let's go to another question. Ma'am, right there. If you can tell us your name as well, please. Hi, Kanta Ahmed. I'm a Muslim author. Um, to my colleagues, uh, Mr. Barr and Mr. Goldberg, I would say what's different and what you're arguing clearly is that the new ingredient is virulent political Islamism which both of you have touched upon, which changes the equation, not just the uh, poly-nuclear conflict. I think that's what makes this so much more dangerous than anything um, history has previously seen in terms of the Cold War. Would you agree and could you expand? Wait, are you asking them if... You're, you're saying you agree with them? I agree. But then you're I, asking them if they agree with you. I, and also, I agree. But... but but, but do you, I, want, but do you not want to put that question is, to this side? As, as you're the moderator, but I think that's the part that's overlooked entirely. So take, tur- turn that into a question for this side, because I think that's what your intention really yeah, is to Why do. do you not feel that the ingredient of political Islamism, which is actually decimating so many Muslim states politically and ideologically and contributes to the destabilization in Pakistan, the country of my heritage, is not a destructive factor that is alien from the previous 60 years of nuclear um, uh, armaments. Well, Jim Dobbins. Uh, first of all, I don't, I, you know, Iran has been a virulently Islamist state for 30 years now, 40 years? 79. 79. Um, uh, it's probably a little less virulent now than it was, but it's still a virulent Islamist state, uh, and yet it hasn't behaved uh, irresponsibly in the sense of doing anything that endangers its existence. The regime has done lots of outrageous things, but none of them threatened its existence. None of them threatened the uh, continuity of the regime. Um, Iran, in fact, hasn't invaded anybody for 500 years, so it's not as if they have territorial claims. They're promoting subversion. They're promoting uh, overthrow of hostile regimes. Um, They're uh, engaging in terrorism, and I would anticipate that they would continue to do so. 
At no point has either American or Israeli nuclear weapons deterred them from that. I don't think there's any level of that that they could engage in that would result in a nuclear strike on our part. And therefore, I don't think that their having nuclear weapons would particularly affect that kind of behavior, which would, we would continue to have to respond to forcefully and on, on, uh, at times and certainly rigorously, uh, but I don't think it would be notably harder. Jeffrey and Goldberg. as far as Islam in the Arab world, or for that matter in the South Asian world, I don't know that it's particularly, you know, relevant to this problem. It, it's certainly a challenge. And well, well, you know, to answer the question, the saving grace, one of the saving graces of, of the Cold War was that, that the Soviets were atheists and that they didn't, uh, they didn't envision uh, this world as simply the anteroom to a superior afterlife. And so I do think you have to take into account, not just with Islam, but, but with, with uh, as I said before, fundamentalist Jewish parties in Israel, I wouldn't want to see controlling nuclear weapons. We're entering the age of political Islamism in the Middle East. The Muslim Brotherhood is in charge of Egypt today. In another year, it's going to be in charge of Syria. Um, ask yourself, I'll you know, answer this question with a question to the audience in a way, which is, would you be comfortable having the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt be in control of nuclear weapons? Would you be comfortable having the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria be in charge of, of nuclear weapons? And for that matter, would you, would you, would you be happy if the chief rabbis of Israel had nuclear weapons? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. The chief rabbis of Israel do not have nuclear weapons. Uh, the, you know, I, I don't want people who think that this world is simply a prelude to the next to, to, to help bring us there sooner. <laughs> I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this. Now, this is a little bit that I have to do. I wasn't trying to be funny. I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Thank you for your patience. That's for the radio broadcast. Let's go on to some more questions. Ma'am, right here on the, uh, uh, the microphone, and please stand and tell us My your name. My name is Susan Sandler. The, the camera needs to find you. Thanks. How does each side co- uh, cope with the fact of unprecedented mass media, mass communications, and, to put it this way, everybody will have the same problems controlling their children that we have controlling our children as time progresses and people become more educated, more affluent in all parts of the world, and... Uh, uh, and although there is a, uh, an Islamist revolution, there will be liberation from many dogma and many Ma'am, doctrines. I'm not, can, I'm not sure how your question focuses. Oh, my question di- is, di- di- how do down, they yeah. cope with this progression of, um, of ideas because nothing is, uh, since nothing is static, and so the apocalyptic view, the inevitable view, uh, how do they cope with it? And how do you cope uh, on the other side with change that might evolve as it's coming up, uh, as this is happening with all communication? Man, with, with respect, I'm going to decline your question because I think it's a little bit too broad and not focused, but, but thank you. Um, let's see, right down in the frontier, gray sweater. Yeah. Just wait for the mic to come for you. It's being passed down on your left side. And if you could stand so that the camera can find you. Thanks. Uh, My question is for Mr. Goldberg. Uh, Mr. Goldberg... Can you tell us your name? Oh, Fareed Kress. Many times the supreme leader has made a distinction between Zionism and Judaism. And many of the people in the regime have often said that they have nothing against Judaism. They have a Jewish MP. There's a very large synagogue 
that covers about four blocks in Tehran, you see many Jews, not many, but I would say you see a few Jews going around, you know, with their distinct caps. Ma'am, where are you, where are you going with My this? My question is this, is that do you really believe that the Mullah-hating Mullah Jews are who you claim they are? I mean, do they really hate the Jews when so many Iranian Jews, the older generation, have returned to Iran? So, and, you, and, and your point being that this undermines the Jeffrey's argument. My question is that they don't really want to possibly annihilate the state of Israel more than maybe change the nature of the regime so it becomes more multi-ethnic. Would you agree to that? Okay, Jeffrey Goldberg. Israel is the homeland and state of the Jewish people. They want to deny the Jewish people their right to a Jewish homeland and a Jewish state. They threaten to use violence and use violence to do that. I'm sure some of Ayatollah Khamenei's best friends are Jews. And I'm sure that people walk around the streets of Tehran with kippot on. Um, I would point out that, yes, there's a synagogue open in Tehran. When Natan Sharansky and the Refuseniks were in jail in the Soviet Union, there were five synagogues open in Moscow. It's not relevant. The, the, the vast majority of Iranian Jews have fled the country. There was a population of 200,000. They're down to 25,000 now. Uh, it's not, it's not relevant. The Iranian regime is very happy to have their Jews living in protected second class status. Uh, and that's the way they, they like it. That's the Iranian regime. The Iranian people, by the way, are not anti-Semitic. Uh, on the whole, but the regime most definitely is. I can, I can cite you quote after quote after quote to show you that they have, uh, they, they take almost an epidemiological, they use epidemiological metaphors to talk about the curse of international Jewry. You know, these are not people who want compromise on the West Bank. These are people who want the Jewish people denied their right to have a homeland in at least part of their historic homeland. Sir. Um. There's a, right in front of you, two rows back, there's a mic being handed up to you. There you go. Hi, my name is William Grassi. I just want to preface this by saying that as a young man, I had an opportunity to, to study for a year at the Hebrew University, a very impressionable year. And recently I've had uh, two opportunities to visit Iran for conferences there. And, and the question is um, uh, really that Iran could be our natural ally, is our natural ally in the region and if there were 10 years of detente, uh, the theocrats would be thrown out and there would be massive change. Um, all do, you, the, do, you, do you mean detente under a deterrent uh, system? I, I, I mean re relationships, what we did with the okay. Soviet Union. Okay, I just want you to, to land this question in relation to our motion. So what, the, the, there's a, the, these are not fixed entities, that things can change, and that our policies uh, could result in massive change in the Iranian regime, and uh, that, but uh, in a, in a, a follow-up question is, if there were a comprehensive settlement to the Israeli-Palestinian problem, wouldn't that also take the wind out of the sail of the Iranian animosity? And, would, and that and, anything that the Palestinians and could, sir, let me I just yeah. to, to I'm, so, I'm so, not disagreeing with you. You're asking this question. I'm asking you if uh, if you feel that. You're, would you amend it to say that uh, even under nuclear Iran, things could change, the, could, uh, the settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict would, would render irrelevant uh, Iran's possession of a nuclear weapon as it relates to Israel's survival? It wouldn't, it wouldn't change the problem of a polynuclear Middle East. That would still okay. be a problem. But, but it would 
uh, change the dynamics. Okay, you and I are debating now. It, it would change I, the dynamics. No, I, I don't mean to do right. that. I just want you to like put a focus question. It would change guys. the dy- 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 dynamics of their animosity towards Israel. Okay. Hey. Shmuel Bar. Yes, I, I don't know. It seems I'm in a sort of uh, cognitive dissonance here with some of those questions because uh, uh, I think sometimes I feel that I'm living in a parallel world. I read what is written in Iran. I read the material coming out of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. I have no doubt that most – you know, Iran is probably the most pro-American country in the Middle East after Israel. But it doesn't really matter. Because, you know, you may have noticed that not everywhere in the world does the public opinion of the people rule the country. There are many, many countries in the world, not only North Korea and places like that, where people may think one thing and uh, the regime is something else. And the, and the, more, uh, the, the, the more dictatorial the regime is, then uh, the, the easier, easier it is to make sure that what people want isn't what they get. Um, the Iranian poet uh, um, Asadi once wrote that the sultan is evil and you must get rid of him and you must uh, destroy him but if you cannot kill him if you cannot cut off his hand kiss it and this is basically what has happened to the revolution in Iran so uh, to, to the green revolution now uh, yes, it is possible that over a period of decades, eventually, Iran will, uh, will get back to being uh, you know, a friend of America and a friend of everybody, and was a friend of Israel, was an ally of Israel. But what happens in between? And what does a regime do when it has a nuclear weapon and it does everything in order to enhance its position and to make sure that by enhancing its position abroad, it can also put down its opposition at home? Because who would dare intervene in Iran when Iran can do that uh, sort of mischief abroad? Okay. Do we have a question that will be directed towards this team? I only want to balance the talking time here. The far side. Um, Oh, actually, I'm sorry. I I, I meant higher up, but go ahead and do that. Go ahead, since... uh... You've talked a bit about... Can can you tell us your name? Sorry. I'm Gabe Strauss. So you've talked a bit about the opposition, I mean, about the sort of fundamentalist groups in Lebanon and in Palestine, Hamas and Hezbollah. What do you think about how this would affect the fight against Mr. Assad in Syria and what do you think that the current situation in Syria, where you have hundreds of fragmented groups fighting against Mr. Assad, how mean, do you think do you that mean, that could affect do you Israel? Mean Iran's getting a nuclear weapon. How would that? Yes. Affect how the would that affect this situation, and how could the combination of the two affect Israel? Given that Syria is Iran's basic only ally in the region. Yes, and that Syria okay, shares a border with the U.S. Uh, good with question, Israel. but they yeah. use their phrase, it's not relevant. Sorry? It's not relevant to our deb- debate, what's going on in Syria. I mean, I, I mean, I, hey, I, give the kid a break. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Jim Dobbins. Yeah, Jim, I mean, you were starting to I answer. <laughs> I mean, I don't... Iran is, already, Iran is already helping um, the Assad regime. Um, it would probably do so under those circumstances. Um, I don't see why it would, its help would be more efficacious uh, because it had nuclear weapons. It's not going to threaten to use nuclear weapons against the Iranian opposition. Um, uh, so I, I, I don't think it's likely to have a, a major impact. It might have some short-term psychological impact. 
But it, it, you know, I mean, the United States successfully waged a war that got that that threw the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan, employing Pakistani and and Afghan surrogates. The Soviets had nuclear weapons; they were completely useless. They got defeated in Afghanistan, despite the fact that they had twenty-four thousand nuclear weapons. I know it's an analogy. That's a pretty that's a pretty good analogy. No, no the timeline. Uh, uh, the timeline is, uh, uh, you know, time is out of joint. Uh, the Assad regime is going to fall within half a year or so right. anyway. And Iran is going to take over the northern part of uh, no, the, part, the part of what he said that I found interesting uh, was no, how so powerless not, the Soviets were when they had nuclear weapons. Uh, yes. Because to win in the, Afghanistan. Uh, because they, you can't use a nuclear weapon in order to uh, fight a war in Afghanistan. It wasn't relevant to that. But and that's, in, not, in Gaza? that's not the situation that we're talking about. We're talking about nation states which have nuclear weapons and are posturing uh, with nuclear weapons against each other and are going on nuclear alerts and are going into spirals of escalation. And this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about things like uh, wars like uh, the Soviets uh, waged in Afghanistan. Right. It's, why, it's why, why is what the United States did to the Soviet Union in Afghanistan different from what Iran is doing to Israel in Gaza? Why is it different? It's exactly the same. You're supporting an insurgent group against them, and nuclear weapons were irrelevant. But why is it relevant to this? It isn't relevant. That's the point. Uh, no, the nuclear uh, weapons I mean, had no uh, effect in uh, either case. Yeah. Uh, the why is it irrelevant thing is really getting old for me. Huh? Okay. I, I find it relevant, and I'm neutral in this, but I find it, <laughs> I find it an engaging thought. Yes, but so, so uh, the United States supported uh, bin Laden in Afghanistan to help him kick out the Soviets. That was a very good idea. I think it was a, really a marvelous idea. And uh, uh, I'm sure that you're happy with that, uh, you know, uh, in retrospect. Seemed like um, a good idea at the time. Yeah, um, uh, especially in this city. Uh, but uh, what we're talking about here is the risk of Iran acquiring a nuclear weapon against a series of countries, uh, uh, an array of countries which are going to have nuclear weapons as well, and not, not the issue of how do you prevent a, a superpower who is using limited uh, um, conventional weaponry uh, to invade a neighboring state, and then you use your own proxies against their proxies. It's a completely different game. Right down front here. I'll just let the mic come to you. It's coming from behind you. And if you could stand up, please. Peter Yamashi, I would like to reverse the question. How much longer do you think Iran can live with a nuclear Israel? That's not the debate tonight. I'm sorry. Thanks. No, it's not a bad question. It's just that it's not going to move us forward. Ma'am, on the far, all the way towards the back there. Third from the, from, from the far row. Hi, thank you so uh, much. Ma'am, could you stand? Thanks. My name is Renee Tambor. I'd like to ask the uh, panel... How they would like to live with somebody next door who said they're going to kill you and they have all the weapons just as we have guns and so on going on here. People threaten to kill okay, other again, people. And again, then they, I think, excuse I think, me. I think, we've covered, I think we've covered it with respect, that, that part of the question, and I respect your passion and I hear it. But Can I, want I just to move change on to a my question topic. at this point? <laughs> I'll change you, my you question. You said, how can you live with somebody next door to you who wants to kill you? And, I, and Jeffrey made that point very relevantly. And if, with respect, if you could yield the mic, uh, sir. Thank you. 
Fred Baumgarten, a question for Mr. Dobbins. Uh, you've talked about Israel dealing with uncertainties rather than certainties. My question is, can you give us some metrics by which Israel can calibrate an appropriate reaction uh, knowledgeably? And also, can you give us some historical examples of how other countries have dealt with existential threats and what levels of uncertainty has been acceptable versus uh, a precursor to a uh, swift response? So what, what are the red lines to living with a nuclear Iran? Uh, Jim Dobbins. Well, I, you know, I'm not sure that one can, you know, calculate exact levels of risk. I would certainly acknowledge that the, the risk of miscalculation and a nuclear uh, exchange uh, is higher if the p- countries have nuclear weapons than if they don't. Um, uh, it's high enough to be very concerned about. Um, and so, you know, going back to my proposition, it's it, Israel um, uh, shouldn't, have, shouldn't have to live with a nuclear Iran if it has a better choice. I'm just arguing that there aren't better choices necessarily than those that we're already uh, pursuing. Um, I, I mean, I, we'll get into whether it's relevant or not, but a whole literature on the concepts of deterrence, on means of deterrence, on mutual signaling, on avoiding um, uh, escalatory uh, uh, instability um, by making sure that, that you weren't subject to a first strike and that's tempting uh, your, your adversary to make that first strike in, in rising tensions. Um, there are ways that, uh, that one can minimize the risk of escalation by the way one constructs and, and uh, hides and, uh, and, and disposes of one's nuclear forces. Uh, there are technical ways that one can avoid uh, uh, unauthorized use of these kinds of weapons. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a long history of literature on that. Um, the United States, for instance, has sought to um, help Pakistan uh, establish uh, a mechanism, physical mechanisms uh, and procedures that would make an unauthorized or accidental launch of a nuclear weapon more difficult. I'm not suggesting we necessarily get into such a relationship with Iran, but we might hope someone did. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Where our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And we are about to move on to round three, which will be brief closing statements from each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each. And this is their last chance to try to influence your vote. Immediately after their closing statements, we'll have our second vote. And remember, it's the team that has moved your numbers the most in the course of the debate who will be declared our winner. On to then round three, closing statements. Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic and columnist for Bloomberg View. Uh, Thank you, John. Uh, I want to just tell a very brief uh, story. Uh, In 1998, I was in Afghanistan, in in Kandahar, uh, when Osama bin Laden issued his first fatwa, the first big fatwa, the fatwa against crusaders and Jews. And I was with a bunch of people, Westerners, and we heard about this, and frankly, we we laughed about it because it seemed uh, crazy, absolutely insane, uh, the the audacity of it. And, uh, you know, I I learned three years later that very often when someone who says something that that seems crazy uh, says it over and over again, uh, that it's, it's worth 
paying attention to. And so on my visits to Iran, uh, and I've been there a few times, uh, I've talked to people in the, in the regime uh, about these subjects. I'll tell you one very brief encounter I had with a guy named Mohammed Ali Samadi, who was a leader of a group called the Seekers of Martyrdom, uh, which actually sounds like a great name for a band, actually. Uh, <laughs> but their job at the time was to try to figure out how to kill Salman Rushdie. And, and, uh, but I talked to him about Israel, and, uh, and he, he said the following, which has always stayed with me. Um, there are always infectious, infections and diseases in man. In the world, there is an infection called international Jewry. And I listened to him, and I listened to the various leaders of the regime, and I've decided to take them seriously. I think in the post-9-11 age, we have to take religious fundamentalists who say they want to kill you seriously. I think it is possible to overlearn the, the, overlearn the lessons of Jewish history, to overlearn the lessons of the Holocaust. But I'm even more afraid of underlearning the lessons of Jewish history. I believe that the Iranian regime is serious about wanting to find a way to destroy the state of Israel. I believe that if they get a nuclear weapon, they will go a great distance to achieving that goal. And therefore, I I ask you to vote against this resolution, vote against this motion. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey Goldberg. Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Reuven Peditsur, a senior military affairs analyst with Haaretz. Thank you. Unfortunately, all the arguments that we have raised were, was, were irrelevant, so I'll try. Anyway, I understand the, the arguments of the other side. It's very frightening to live under this shadow of uh, this hostile regime with nuclear weapons. And I, I have no illusions. The Ayatollahs are not uh, lovers of Zion, but they are very rational and they want to survive, and they want to rule their country. And at the end, they are not going to use their weapons. We can live with a nuclear run. I live in Tel Aviv. This is the, the center of the target. And I didn't ask my four daughters and my grandchildren to leave Israel, because I believe that we can leave Israel and survive more than three years. In the 50s, uh, at the end of the 50s, when uh, there was uh, the threat of the Soviet Union, people in the States started building atomic shelters in their backyard. And Kennedy ran for president in promising that he, he is going to build atomic shelters for the whole population. I hope that we, we are not going to start building atomic shelters in Tel Aviv. A nuclear Iran is not the end of Zionism. Thank you. Thank you. Rosen Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And here summarizing his position against the motion, Shmuel Bar. He is director of studies at the Institute of Policy and Strategy in Herzliya, Israel. Thank you. Um, I want to just reiterate that rationality of every single individual involved in a conflict is not a guarantee that the conflict will end uh, or will develop uh, in a rational manner or in a way which uh, uh, everybody would be happy with. In the end, uh, history shows us that uh, a lot of things happened which everybody's sorry about, that it's bad for everybody. Now, uh, you know, we talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, etc., Actually, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, all of these rational people uh, were very, very close to a, an Armageddon of that, uh, of, uh, uh, which was 
according to the capabilities of that period. Uh, during the Cold War, there were a number of instances where the United States and the Soviet Union, with all of their command and control capabilities, with all of their intelligence, uh, actually came to some uh, very, uh, um, uh, very dangerous uh, points which were avoided because the leaderships had a means of communication. Now, the level of hostility in the Middle East does not augur well for direct communications between not even, not only Israel-Iran, but Iran, Saudi Arabia, and, and we're talking about a Middle East in which countries are falling apart and that sub-countries may acquire the nuclear weapons that they will inherit from the countries which are disintegrating. We're talking about a region which is, uh, I call this the Humpty Dumpty stage, that they're falling apart and nobody will put them together again. Uh, this is a very dangerous area to have nuclear weapons. Uh, ultimately, uh, the question is not, well, can you do anything about it? If you can't do anything about it, live with it. But uh, you have to do something about it. You've got to find a way. And believe me, there are more than one ways to skin a cat, even a Persian cat. Thank you, Shmuel Bar. The motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, James Dobbins. He's director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center at RAND. Well, I'm, I'm old enough to remember um, when in... Uh, in elementary school, we were taught to hide under our desks under nuclear Duck attack. Duck and cover. Duck and cover. And, you know, sirens would go off and we would hide under our desks. So, you know, some level of fear and concern is natural enough in a society that faces that kind of threat. And if you can avoid the threat, by all means do so if you have a better choice. We didn't have a better choice at the time. Um, uh, 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 Reuven has suggested that... Um, uh, that uh, nuclear Iran will not be the end of the Jewish state. And uh, I have to say, most Israelis agree with them. Uh, the Times of uh, Israel uh, published a poll last week, uh, a poll done in the context of their election campaign, in which they asked uh, uh, the uh, Israeli populace what were the issues that, most, uh, that created most anxiety? What were they most worried about? Was Iran the number one issue? No. Uh, economic issues were their dominant concern. Was Iran the number two issue? No. Actually, and perhaps rather healthily, the deterioration uh, in relations with the Palestinians was the number two concern. Was Iran the number three concern? No. The, three con the third concern was the state of their education system. Iran was the fourth uh, in this list of six, uh, with 12% of the uh, Israeli population thinking that the Iranian threat was their principal concern. Thank you, James Dobbins. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side you feel argued the best this evening. We're asking you again to go to the keypads at your seat, as you did at the beginning of the debate. The motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, if after hearing the debate you've been Move to the side or stay at that side. Press number one. If your position is or became against, push number two. And if you remained or became undecided, push number three. And if you think you pushed a key incorrectly, just uh, correct yourself, and the system will only record your last vote. And we'll have the results of that vote in just about a minute.
Okay. Before we do that, I want to uh, I want to do this. It's uh, it's a contentious topic tonight. I think it was done in a very very uh, civil and and constructive way. Certain things were declared irrelevant repeatedly, <laughs> and maybe they were. But I want to congratulate our debaters for the quality of debate they brought here. I also want to thank people who asked questions this evening, and that includes the questions that I did not take. Uh, I want to make it clear that if I pass on a question, it is not meant as a disrespect in any way or uh, a sign that the question is invalid or unsound. Uh, I particularly liked your question, in fact, about uh, what is Iran going to do about nuclear Israel? Someday we're going to have that debate. I, I know you feel it's relevant. That's why you asked it. But I have to make a judgment call on that. And the woman who expressed her passion uh, about living next door to a neighbor who wants to kill you, I totally respect that. And there was no disrespect intended in passing in the question. I just felt that we had covered it. But I basically want to say, let's give a round of applause to everybody who had the nerve to get up and ask the question tonight. So um, <laughs> thank you for uh, tolerating my uh, occasionally vanishing laryngitic voice tonight. It'll be better at the next debate, which will be Wednesday, February 13th. Um, We will be uh, looking at this motion, prohibit genetically engineered babies. Um, It's it's based on the fact that we already screen for genetic diseases and the ability to choose a child's eye color and intelligence is actually that's not so far off. We want to look basically at the policy and the ethics implied in that manifestation of a brave new world. Our debaters will include... uh, for the motion, arguing to prohibit, uh, Sheldon Krimsky. He is the chair of the Center for Responsible Genetics and professor of humanities and social sciences at Tufts University. He'll be partnered with Lord Robert Winston. He is a pioneer in fertility and IVF treatment and professor of science and society at Imperial College, arguing against Nita Farahaney. She is a professor of law and genome sciences at Duke, also a member of the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues, and her partner will be Lee Silver, and Lee Silver is a professor of molecular biology and public policy at Princeton University. Tickets for our spring season debates are available uh, right now through our website, www.iq2us.org, and for those of you who cannot make it to that debate or be in a live audience, uh, those of you who are watching right now on live stream know that there is the live stream at fora.tv. Uh, you can also listen to the debates, this one included, on NPR, and watch for them on PBS stations across the country. Just check your local listings for air dates and times. We'd also love it if you tweeted about tonight's debate. Even if you haven't, you can go home and do it now. Um, our Twitter handle is at IQ2US, and our hashtag for this evening's debate in particular is Israel-Iran. All right, the results are in. Okay, so remember, we've had you vote twice and the team whose numbers moves by the largest percentage point is declared our winner. So let's find out who you decided won this debate. The motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, before the debate, in polling you in the live audience, 25% of you agreed with the motion, 35% were against it, and 40% were decided. So the final results, remember, the winner is the team that has changed the numbers the most from the first vote to the second. The second vote now, the team arguing for the motion, they went from 25% to 37%. That is a 12% increase. That is the number to beat. Now let's look at the team against the motion. 
They went from 55, 35% to 55%. They went up 20%. That's the winning side. The team arguing against the motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, has won our debate. That's it for this time. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.